Zero. Welcome to episode 21, 21, 21, 21 of the Realtors Podcast with my friend Rebecca Zucker and me, your host, Kevin Edwards. This podcast is made possible by Realtors Magazine, the inspirational leadership magazine on a mission to help you flip the page to purpose. Today we have on special guest Rebecca Zucker, who is an expert in both leadership development and career transition. She has coached individuals throughout the United States and Europe from high potential managers to CEOs. Rebecca founded Next Step Partners 17 years ago and has a background in business and finance as Val Victorian of the Laird N. Stern School of Business at NYU and later received her MBA from Stanford. Rebecca, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you because 17 years of experience is something I do not have. <laughs> not even one year. So tell me, oh. what, what are the takeaways from 17 years of experience in the leadership field? Wow, that's a very big question. I think uh, one big takeaway is that to really grow and develop as a leader, it takes two things. One is vulnerability. And that may just be the ability to say to yourself, if, you know, hopefully you can share it with other people as well, but at a minimum sharing with yourself, you know, I'm really not as good at X, Y, or Z as I need to be, or as I should be, or as I want to be. And the other element that's really critical to growth and development is reflection. And this is the ability to look inward and check in with yourself and ask yourself some tough questions and really sit with them if you don't have the answers right away. Hmm. Things like, you know, what's stopping me from getting better at X? How am I getting in my own way? What are my fears, concerns, or worries? And then all along the way, as you are making effort and progress, checking in on what's going well, what did I do really well this week, this month, that I hadn't been able to do before and what's coming up uh, that I might be able to tackle or try something different or do better next time. Right. Yeah. Self-reflection is very huge for me, at least. I know it's, it's one of the toughest things to do. Uh, it is. It is. And it's, um, it's not a tool that we, uh, that everyone necessarily has to start out with, but it's a tool that can be developed for sure. And it does take practice, even yeah. for those who it may come naturally to. Yeah, what are the type of strategies that you use for self-reflection? At least for me, it's like, all right, I gotta think out. I gotta take a step back, kind of analyze, kind of what's going on. I'll, I'll usually like write something down, and, and usually that will help me kind of figure things out. Or I'll record myself, or just do something weird. You know, I, I try a lot of different things, but sometimes it's just hard to crack and kind of realizing what the root problem is of everything. Yeah. You know, for some people, like you mentioned about writing things down for some people, journaling is really helpful sort of stream of consciousness mm. to um, really probe into a particular area that they want to reflect on. Um, I find that whether writing is your thing or not, it's not for everybody. Just having that, quiet time and more than a function of time, it's having the space mm. to reflect. We have so many distractions. Researchers were distracted every 40 seconds, which is a lot. 
And so just to have that space that is free from distraction, that we can really just sit with ourselves and with whatever questions are on our mind that mm -hmm. we want to think further about. Um, the other thing is that reflection is not an analytical process. Sometimes it's not like if you think harder, the answer is going to come to you. And that's what can make it really difficult or challenging for people who, you know, are really smart and analytical and very accomplished. This is, you know, a very uncomfortable exercise for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get so trapped, you know, it's like uh, working on a job for months and I haven't even take time to realize what we've accomplished. It's all, there's always something to do, right? So yes. how do you deal with something like that where you just don't feel like you're making any, any progress, progress, but you kind of, then you look back and you realize, okay, well, I've done a couple things, but you, you just don't really feel like you're in that good spot. You feel like you're in that good place where you're going somewhere. What's a, a remedy for that? Well, I think it is to be able to step back and zoom out and look at the bigger picture. And day to day, you may not notice that progress. But mm -hmm. if you look over a longer period of time, perhaps the progress is more noticeable. You can compare it to, you know, turning the pages of a book page by page. There might not be such a huge difference. But over time, look at where I've gotten to or how far I've come. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so, Rebecca, another thing is uh, just speaking with your coworkers, employees, you know, giving and receiving that feedback. Sometimes mm -hmm. I like it. Sometimes I don't like it, but usually it works out in the end. Usually it gets me to a better place. You know, it, yes. it, it uh, raises awareness of my weaknesses and I'm able to focus and hone down on those, uh, that root problem, those, those uh, skills and improve them. What are some things that you try to tell your clients uh, to do to get to that next level? Well, a few things. I think one, it's really important to remember that everyone needs positive feedback as well. Mm. And there will be times when you give just improvement feedback. There will be times when you give uh, just positive feedback and where you can balance the message. Wonderful. What's most important is that over time that there be the perception of balance and research has shown that uh, there needs to be a ratio of four parts positive to one part improvement for there to be the perception of balance over time. And that's because of something called um, the negativity bias, that we as human beings automatically weight negative information much more heavily. And we mm -hmm. do that with ourselves. Even when we do get positive feedback, we tend to dismiss it. It's like, yeah, 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 just tell me <laughs> what I need point. to fix, right? Uh, but the important part of receiving feedback is to also approach the conversation. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's awkward or even embarrassing, or the feedback might sting. But to come to the feedback conversation with a growth mindset, hmm. meaning really being open and curious about the feedback, recognizing that other people likely do see us differently than we see ourselves. and Feedback is a gift. You know, only a, a good friend would tell you you have spinach between your teeth. Exactly. Oh, there's no doubt. And so the point that you just made really resonated with me because uh, that we we take the negative feedback so much heavier than the positive feedback. You know, I got friends and family that'll say, "Oh, hey, you're doing a really good job with the podcast. Um, I'm loving them. I'm sharing them with my friends. They're very insightful for me in my life because it's relevant to what's going on." Um, 
but when they tell me that I'm good at something, I kind of just go, ah, it's, you know, it's not, I'm not that good. Like, like these, these podcasts are not anywhere where I want them to be. Obviously I'm, I'm always improving and, and getting better every single podcast. Um, but the negative feedback really does stick with me. And that's the something that's, that's the one thing that I really do pay attention to, whether it is, Hey, where's something, you know, more appropriate on the show or, uh, stop stuttering over your words or stop mumbling, stop saying, um, you know, things like that. Those are the things I'm not saying that I take them uh, that I'm hurt by them in any ways, but those are definitely the things that I hone into more. So that was a really good point um, that you made. But but when you're giving this feedback now, are you working with an individual client or just an, a, a company itself? Well, we work with organizations at the individual and team level, as well as even bigger organizational level. Uh, and the work that we do may be a one-on-one -on -one coaching engagement with an individual leader, or we may be working with a group of leaders. Uh, we also do team development. So the feedback, we may be facilitating feedback between people or amongst people. Um, we are oftentimes in a one-on-one -on -one executive coaching engagement delivering uh, 360 feedback, both collecting it, synthesizing it, and delivering it. Um, and so what's important for us in delivering feedback, as well as any manager or leader, is to make sure that the person really takes on board the positive feedback, and they hear it, they let it sink in, they feel good about it, because it's just as important for them to know what they're doing well, so they can mm -hmm. continue doing it, so they could leverage those strengths, so they can teach them to other people, in the organization and it's important that you know the tough messages be delivered in a way that uh, is that one that the other person can really hear mm -hmm. without sugarcoating the message and also in a way that motivates them to address that area right because at the end of the day you want them to do something with the feedback definitely well so Rebecca this is some pretty cool stuff and we've had a few leadership consultants on um, but it sounds like uh, what you're doing is you're really going and, and meeting with these people on an individual level, taking that time and really working with them to, to process that feedback, to um, understand their strengths and use that strengths um, to the rest of their team. Um, how, how'd you get into something like this? What, what brought you to the leadership uh, realm? It is a long and winding road, <laughs> but sure. uh, I wouldn't have, wouldn't trade it for anything. So I have a business and finance background. I was an investment banker in New York. I worked overseas in Paris uh, doing strategic planning for Disney consumer products. And I, you know, during all of my, what I'll call it sort of traditional business experience, what I'm doing now is still business. Uh, what I learned was that I love supporting other people to succeed. That was my big takeaway. And while I was essentially working in a finance function, I was good at it, but it wasn't fulfilling to me. The people part was the most interesting and fulfilling to me. And once I was able to really recognize that and distill that, I could then focus on work that would have that be you know, a substantial part of what I do. So I ended up, when I came back to the States, I went back to banking, but in a training capacity, and I ran training for a regional investment bank based in San Francisco, where I live, before starting Next Step Partners. So 
17 years ago where people is the entire focus. Right. Thanks. So business and finance, Goldman Sachs, Disney, Disney products, is it like Disney, Disney, Disney products, a division of Disney. Yes. Wow. And now you're in the leadership. Now, where did, or at least how did you really find out that you were a leader? I guess growing up, you know, you can be on a sports team, you can be a captain, you can be uh, top of your club, you can be um, just in your own individual classroom, helping people out, being a leader and setting that example. Uh, when did you really find out and, and understand that you have the gifts of a, of a leader? That's a really good question. I don't know if it was really conscious for me in that way growing up, but I always stepped forward to take leadership positions. Mm -hmm. I remember in elementary school being captain of my Newcomb team. Uh, in high school, I was president of the French club. It was just something that uh, I enjoyed. Très bien. Très bien. Oui, exactement. Très bien. Très bien. Sorry. That was a poor pronunciation of my French friends. I'm sorry. Not at all. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Um, so... What else, Rebecca? Tell me more about kind of what uh, Next Step Partners does. I mean, strategic thinking, we, we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, how do you help companies see a vision that they might not even see themselves? Well, we're not necessarily helping the company to see the vision. We're mm -hmm. helping individual leaders to create those visions right. and okay. communicate it with their teams or the overall company, depending on who that leader is. And I would say creating and, and communicating a clear vision is hugely important to leadership because as the leader, whether it's of a particular team or of a whole organization, that leader's responsibility is to steer the ship and to have their head up out of the weeds looking forward, uh, as opposed to heads down in the here and now and giving people a clear idea of where they're headed and inspiring them to mm. all head in that direction. And it can inform things like decision-making, what gets done, what doesn't get done. Now from your 17 years, do you have a favorite example that you love sharing and telling people about? With respect to vision or any other particular area? With respect area? to a client that you, um, worked with that you were able to inspire and really change um, the organization internally? That's a great question. There are a lot <laughs> of sure. examples to draw upon. Um, one leader I'm thinking of um, stepped into this organization. They were a new CEO and the organization was really in need of a, a vision. And this individual was very much a lead from behind individual. And some of the best leaders I've seen are low ego leaders. And this person very much had that quality. And, uh, you know, he was very creative and brought a lot of cool ideas to the organization. And, you know, he didn't come in there like a bull in a china shop saying, here's where we're going. He really took his time to listen to everybody so that he could start to formulate what that vision is. I think this person's challenge was he was reluctant to really be more, once he did sort of start to formulate that vision, be more um, 
forceful or directive for lack of a better word in here's where we're going. And uh, because again, he was very much a lead from behind person, but the organization was really looking to him to do that. And when we dug a bit deeper um, through some of the, the work that we did, we looked at what are the underlying competing commitments sort of the fears and worries that had him get in his own way around setting this clear vision for the organization. And it was this limiting belief or assumption that if I set this vision, people will see me as hierarchical and that will um, distance me from everybody. Mm. So that fear of marginalization and being separate from others can be really powerful. And I've seen that show up for other leaders in different contexts with different challenges. Hmm. And recognizing that and starting to test and challenge some of those limiting assumptions were really helpful in helping this person move past that.
All right, welcome lucky listeners to episode 72. 72 of the earliest podcast with the CEO, Tony Arnerich and the co-chief investment officer, Brian Shipley of Arnerich Messina. Gentlemen, before we get started, I'd like to get, read off a sponsored message, um, and that also comes from Martin Rich Messina, an independent investment advisory firm serving individuals and families, foundations and endowments, and corporate clients across the United States. With an emphasis on impact investing and specialization in private markets, the firm has become known for its forward-looking, world-class research and investment opportunities. You can visit them online at www.am-a.com to learn more about their investment approach and read the company's recent white paper, Impact Investing. Why? What? How? Again, folks, that's am-a.com. You can go on there and start investing in impact today. Tony, thanks for coming on the show. You bet. You bet. Who is Arnerich Messina? And how what this is Arnerich Messina? What is Arnerich Messina? Whom Arnerich Messina? It's a 55 people strong uh, investment advisory business in Portland, Oregon that um, has harnessed a, a lot of collective energy, um, client-centric, uh, and as investment professionals, we have the ability to look forward. Uh, and when, as Brian and I looked forward, looked at data, we came up with impact investing. So we've been able to um, achieve a reasonable size in the marketplace by advising about $11 billion. Uh, and we've been involved uh, in building portfolios for over 30 years. So taking that experience and moving it forward to the next generation or into what our topic today is, impact investing was sort of a natural for us. So when you start trying to tell people impact investing is going to give you the same returns investing in companies who, like traditional companies, what was the reaction from people? And, and walk me through how it's changed in the last couple of years. Uh, well, gosh, I think the industry probably shot itself in the foot and the head in the beginning because they, they used language that connoted philanthropy. And as a fiduciary, uh, and to be honest, older white males control most of the money in America, um, it was very difficult for them to get past both the concept and the fact that it was philanthropy first and not investing first. And so either from a fiduciary veil or just from a practical veil, um, it was a barrier. And then the language didn't help. You know, socially responsible, green, ESG, acronyms that, you know, you need an advisor to figure out, right? So we got to make this simple and easy for everyone to understand. Um, and that was the challenge that, you know, Brian and I took on probably a decade ago, yeah. over a decade ago. Our first foray was really kind of the mid-2000s when, you know, equity markets were really robust. This was right before the global, global financial crisis, and there weren't there wasn't a lot of product for our clients to invest in. In fact, we actually had to go over to Europe to find what was really kind of the godfather of investing from an ESG standpoint. And when I say ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance. So companies that are looking through a different lens from a risk perspective on how challenges with you know, sourcing raw materials for the goods that they produce, their impact on the environment for the waste products that go into it, how are they treating um, their customers and their stakeholders from a social standpoint. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion around that, but we found a fantastic group in Europe in the mid-2000s that really didn't have a presence here in the U.S., so we actually had to kind of manufacture or create investment products for our clients to be able to invest in this space. And that, that goes back over 10 years now, which is amazing to think about. So, so the great thing for us about this whole concept and challenge of language, is this philanthropy or investing, and is are you giving up return? And so we had a, 
Brian and I, with a few other leaders in the in the space, ten or twelve years ago, went and talked to maybe over a thousand people, and we were reasonably entertaining. But no one called us back. Yeah. And Brian and I looked at each other, and we looked at the data, and we said, you know, I think we're on to something. I think there is a theme here. I don't know where it's going to go, um, but let's let's let, let's go. So let's start funding. Let's go use our incredible analytical skills and history and experience to go sort out the nuggets in the industry that are doing something meaningful in sustainability, in socially responsible, in green, in pink, in yellow. It, 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 but we're, we went out and found them and then we funded them. We seeded them. And what year is this? That would have been 2008, even 2007, 2008. 2007, 2008, 2007. Pre, pre-crisis. Um, Definitely kind of early days. Arnich is in a really unique position because we actually cater to a really broad array of client types. So we work with families and individuals. We work with a lot of institutions, both endowment foundations and corporate plans. And so it really kind of gives us a unique perspective to kind of see what people are thinking about across the entire spectrum of both institutional and more wealth management type clients. And um, we got a really good uh, view of the industry and there just wasn't a lot lot out there. There's a lot of talk. And so this was this was during a period where, again, equity markets were really robust. Um, people were feeling good about their portfolio account balances. So they're willing to consider at least talk about new things. Mm-hmm. But like Tony said, there just wasn't much movement from an actual deployment standpoint. It actually is rhyming a lot with what we're seeing in the market today. Again, equity markets here over the last 10 years have been really, really strong. People are thinking about new ways to deploy capital. The great thing about today relative to the past is the, the, the marketplace has just grown up so much. There's more uh, vehicles for clients to invest in who have an interest in this space. Um, there's definitely more understanding of what mm. ESG is versus impact and a lot of this language barriers that you know we kind of, it was more education for us mm-hmm. a decade ago where today it's, uh, it's a more real conversation about how do I go about deploying this and really kind of hitting the mark on what I want to accomplish from an impact standpoint. That's that's really how the world has changed over the last day. And, and and we evolved with it. Yeah. Mm. We were sort of dreamy-eyed, I think, when we started, passionate. Uh, but then we began doing the work. And we have such incredible clients here, they let us freelance on them. And so we were able to make investments and, and continue to define our strategy and our investments, and we were able to measure them. And so we knew what we were doing in the space was performing at or better than traditional indices. Uh, so we got our own, we proved to ourselves, I think, was the mm-hmm. first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a decade-long uh, proof statement. And then uh, a year ago, we said, okay, we are ready. Uh, Mitch, Brian, team, go to work. We are going to roll out a full impact, uh, to, to the greatest ability possible, a full impact portfolio. And an impact portfolio for us um, incorporates environmental, social, and governance concepts. It, 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 it is, it is a, a caring vehicle. There, mm-hmm. it, there's, human, you know, there's, there's some humanness in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're able to um, you know, transcend a lot of, uh, of uh, preconceived ideas by having that research, by finding that manager, by monitoring its performance, by meeting with them uh, you know, ten, for 10 years yeah. to get the confidence Right. <clears throat> to roll out a complete impact portfolio. It took 10 years of research and 10 years of guts yeah. and a lot of effort. And we're so excited today because really for the first time, we feel highly confident that we can build a portfolio that really is probably 75 to 80% 
uh, oriented towards what I call the common good. Right. Um, and, 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 if I could just yeah, interject absolutely. real quickly, Tony says, you know, our clients let us kind of freelance with their capital. I don't know if I'd go that far. I think we've we've earned our clients' trust over the nearly three decades that this company has been in business. So whether it's impact or hedge funds and private equities in the 1990s, uh, looking at emerging and frontier markets before that became in vogue in the 2000s, the, the way we go about looking at our investment managers that we want to work with in the future, we tend to be willing to look forward that a lot of this industry just doesn't have the, um, I don't know if it's courage or what, to look forward and see what a different outcome might be. And I, I think over the years since Tony founded the firm, we've earned a tremendous amount of trust with our clients to look forward and take advantage of these opportunities before they become mainstream. Because when they become mainstream, a lot of the opportunity is, is kind of taken out of the, out of the opportunity. So. And if I may, I just want to say I can really respect what you all are doing starting, starting 10 years ago and going into something into the unknown and not getting those calls back. Very similar to a lot of the guests we've had on the show. Um, and I, I feel like we've uh, been throwing around this term impact a lot, but for our listeners, I feel like a lot of the challenges that I'm sure a lot of your clients or potential clients have had is understanding what impact means. Yeah. And that can relate to you because when I came in, it was doing well by doing good. Right. Okay, well, doesn't the dentist do well by doing good? Right. Why wouldn't you invest right. in health? What's the difference between impact? So Tony, I wanna to ask you, how would you define impact? Well, we took a really simple definition, the Brundtland Commission report, that basically said we want to leave the world in as good or better place that, you know, that, than when we came. Mm-hmm. So it was intentional to, to, to making a difference. Um, and that, to me, is impact. Now, what it, how it relates in an investment portfolio that when you do this, and when you look at ESG, right, these, this acronym, well, really... All people who manage money should be aware of their environmental impact. They should have excellent governance, and they should be socially conscious and aware. So, so the ESG application really is just good management. Unfortunately, we've sort of needed to put names around it, but when you go to impact, when you invest in a company that, that um, you know, produces water, um, uh, from air, from the humidity in the air, and you bring water to places where water, where people don't have water, you don't have to argue the impact. So what we wanted to do was to make everything we did pretty obvious, especially in the private equity arena. You know, if you make, if you invest in a company that makes a new drug and it saves people's lives, no one's going to argue impact. But what the industry got into, I think, was just try the definition. And I'll be really honest, most of the world in investing drives the bus looking through the rearview mirror. Very few people would let their child get on a school bus if that's how the driver acted. So if you look through the windshield, there was nothing for those who look backward to analyze. There wasn't 25 money managers that they could go out and sort. There was one or two, and then you had to have confidence in your analytical skills and experience to be able to take that leap. So for us, the leap wasn't chasmatic. It was sequential, and we just kept at it. And I like what you said about management. Uh, so Brian, I want to ask you, you, know, you, you can't manage what you can't measure. How do you measure impact? Yeah, that's the, that's the real challenge today. But again, I, I kind of look back at where we were 10 years ago, where we are today, the, the UN, the SDGs that 
you're familiar with, you're wearing the pin today, which yes, is fantastic. Man. That is one avenue to measure impacting these portfolios. And really that's the holy grail. We think about our endowment foundation clients. They want something above and beyond just the investment results but how are they truly having an impact in their communities or in the world? And so one thing that we've seen the world kind of moving to in a very consistent way is, is tying company revenues, revenues, if it's a public equity portfolio, there are sources now where you can actually um, look at how that company generates its revenues and tie them directly to SDGs. Um, so that's one way to do it. Um, another space that you know we've had a real strong interest in is private real estate. That that was a very simplistic way to think about how impact can really move the needle. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to commit a little bit of capital to do some um, enhancements to the building to improve its you know heating and cooling spend, uh, how it how it recycles water from from the roof, those are all things that you can tangibly measure. Um, that, that have a really profound impact. And these are long-term themes that, again, if you, if you look just a little bit further out than next quarter or next year and are willing to put a little bit of capital into a project with a longer-term vision, you can provide some really compelling economic outcomes. Community building. Community, it's community building. Yeah. When, you, when you take a, a building and you enhance it at that level, you attract a kind of a personality. You're off the grid, potentially. You know, you're less energy. And, and that's where the, the world is going. Um, and uh, you know this is the way that we can accelerate that directionality of community because that's another area that is more and more difficult to get in our you know technologically driven world so a an apartment complex that has you know uh, living uh, exercise uh, uh, ability to discuss uh, you know areas of commonality that kind of stuff um, so not only you know a real estate play but a community play as well as well as you know lessening our impact on on mother yeah. on mother nature so would you be able to walk me through like what's a company that comes to your mind? Uh, you were mentioning a few earlier. Right, what's a right. company that comes to mind, and how do you work with them? And if you explain their the type of business that they run, do you want to do you want to take that? One sure. Um, so you know, this is mostly evidenced in the private equity or venture capital arena, which is really the most vibrant area uh, I think of 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 investment opportunity today mm-hmm. uh, today because this is uh, you know American know-how technology and venture capital converging to make change and if we can get critical mass it'll be pretty exciting so things that we we look for uh, for example water I mean in the West unbelievably west of the Mississippi you and I companies farmers can own water west east of the Mississippi we can we were in a really quirk of law. And as you know, we have water-stressed areas in, in the West. Well, you know, you can actually do the most incredible things with a water-rich farm. You can take that farm, very simple, it's a farm. It's just growing stuff. It's not, you know, it's hard work, etc. You can turn that farm organic. You can take and use half the amount of water by investing in, you know, in, in high-tech uh, irrigation techniques. And then you can sell some of the water. And you can take an investment that is, is, is turning its crop organic, it's using less water, and it's monetizing its water right so that the investment actually is a better investment than the average farm investment. Mm-hmm. Now that takes know-how, know-how, and that's this whole concept of going out and finding the managers who we fund. And today, I think our clients own about 30,000 acres of farmland that's going through this change. And, and that's a big trend. I think there was a McKinsey study that came out that was like by 2030 or 2050. It's a big gap, but there's going to be... Pause, 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 hold that thought. Get a drop. 
Like your drop. Your oh, don't don't worry about it. Yeah, it's okay. Right. And I want to put that back. I got some great great shots, but I want to put it back on the, the dual. Yeah, you like that. Perfect. And then yeah. you just remember the three yep. program. Yep. Okay, there you go. I was just gonna say, and we got this is great, but um. Really good. Uh, there was a McKinsey study that came out, and I think it was by 2030, correct me if I'm wrong, like 60% of the companies um, in the Force 500 or something, or not Force 500, 60% of the companies in, in North America or something like that will be sustainable enterprises, social enterprises. What are some of the trends, Brian, that you're seeing um, in the field of work that you're doing? Yeah, I think there's, again, there's just more awareness around this. So there's companies that are actually measuring companies, and, and we're kind of taking this to a higher level than looking at farmlands or companies that are directly tied to sustainability, where they're coming up with, with a product or solution that is tied to changing the world. But even companies like in our own backyard, like a Nike, um, you know, if you, if you rewind the clock 15, 20 years ago, they got into some, some hot water from a press standpoint and a shareholder standpoint where, you know, there was concerns over their child labor practices uh, in, in Asia. There was concerns about how they were sourcing their raw materials. So right. Nike was kind of one of the first movers in this space to really recognize that there was some risk long term to their business and they needed to rethink um, how they went about um, thinking about their supply chain and, and how they were um, you know, moving raw materials to an end product and how that affected their employment base. Um, so Nike was, again, one of the first movers in that space. They established a sustainability group. They spent a lot of time on kind of design and innovation. And, you know, one output of that is the fly knit um, material that they use now. It's less material, lighter weight, so better performance for, you know, the athletes that are wearing their products. You know, that's an example of a company that you wouldn't think of Nike as a sustainability-oriented company, but everybody is aware of this um, today that they need to be thinking about. They need to be talking about it. And even in just kind of traditional meetings that we have with long-only equity managers who may or may not kind of wave that sustainability or impact flag, this concept of ESG and how they're incorporating it into their investment process, it comes up in nearly every conversation. It's really amazing how much that has changed over the last 10 years. And I think it's it's moving the needle exactly what you're talking about, where companies are just more aware of it and recognize they need to do something about it. And Tony, do you, you feel like these companies that Brian is talking about, they're making these changes because of social pressure or it will, in the long term, uh, increase profitability or both? I'd like to think both. But I'll take one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> Not kind of at the results-oriented part of my career. Uh, in the case of Nike, which we know really well, uh, they, they led it, and then they went quiet because it was a competitive advantage. Right. That's right. right. That's right. And now they're coming back out with it because mm. it's a little more mainstream. Yeah. So it went to the heart of what we believe this is. It's about economics. Mm -hmm. And if you can hook the economics to the intent... Now you got a winner, and Nike's a winner in, the, in, 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 in this particular genre and a leader. And we're really proud to have it in our backyard. We've been you know, managing the Nike retirement plan for 35 years. Um, so it's like a wonderful combination that we've been able to watch their growth and be part of that. They spoke at some of our conferences, so we're really aware. So that would be a real big public company statement. Mm -hmm. And then you move all the way down to the, to the venture capital startups and all the different uh, opportunities that, that we see going on uh, in, in, in this new economy, which is really you know tech-based. But I think for us, investing in what the world needed was something that the client could hook onto. So if the genre was sketchy 
and hazy and allowed people not to focus, then it was hard, harder to argue that what we wanted to do was to invest in what the world needed. Mm. And we're not saying that we need or are making any any judgment on anything else, but that to us was tactile. That was us to our customers. We could really do it. And so what you end up doing as investors is you build diversified portfolios and the way you outperform is your where you make your tilts. So if you have as an investment professional, the things that you want to your back is wind. You don't want to sail the boat, you know, in right. into the wind. And, and so we think those themes, we could articulate water and scarcity and need, food with McKinsey and scarcity and need, energy, because if we don't decarbonize, we're going to, I don't, the, the risks are too grave. And then healthcare, which needs to be invested in for both better outcomes, but saving the system money and allowing the system to self-correct, which has gotten completely out of whack. And Brian, we've talked a lot about the the E of the ESG, right, right. Uh, the environment. What about the S? I heard the S is referred to as like the messy middle. Right. Uh, what, what do you look for in a company or what do you tell your investors about the S well, of the company? Well, so S being the social component, and that's not just necessarily your communities, it's your stakeholders. It's the employees that work at these companies. It's the customers. It's, an, it's a really critical piece of all of this, and, and I love that we've kind of tied this back together. So when we talk about impact and we talk about ESG in particular, internally, we really kind of consider that in, impact 1.0. And that's an important piece of client portfolios. But, but what Tony's talking about with these themes around water and energy and healthcare and food, from our standpoint, that's really impact 2.0. Which, which still entails ES and G, but it, it's really the segment of the market that we think is going to drive the outperformance in our client portfolios. It's going to have these secular um, tailwinds that we think are going to be really powerful for companies that are just in the path of that growth and the path, path of that capital spend. And so I still think social and environmental and governance all play a critical role in that. It's just diving into that space a little bit more, and, and that's really where I think we're going to see our value creation come. And I think the social drives really the whole thing because it's yeah. the people quotient. Yeah. And it's the people who drive all this stuff. We'd like to think that, you know, maybe it's some great idea, but it's the people, that social part. And I think that if you're as a company, if you're adding value in your community, you know, in your shareholder group, in your board, in, in, in your stakeholders, and you're always adding value down the chain, though that's really the essence of, 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 of socially responsible investing, is adding value to your constituency. Yeah. And, and we have to redefine it, I think. Yeah. And this is an interesting point in time, right? Because all the things that we're talking about require a long-term perspective to actually move the needle, whereas today, where kind of the public equity market has gone, so much is focused on just short-term results. The managers that we've seen kind of perform the best and also have some of the strongest ESG scores are those with a very long-term perspective. They're looking for management teams that are looking out beyond the next quarter or the next year and, and understanding that the decisions that they're making today is really going to drive, if we look at S just specifically as the stakeholders of the employees of the company and keeping them happy and, and having that resonate with the, their ultimate clients. They're focused on those kind of things, and they're willing to kind of forego short-term results to build a really powerful platform for really future growth and sustainability. And, and what are some S and G being governance uh, principles that Orange Messina has incorporated in their own company that's resulted that's in, in profit that's and growth? Question. 
Well, you know, environmentally, um, uh, that one you just make as low a carbon impact as you can. Um, we have a, a we require a team concept, so we have a central office um, and where we work from. On the social side, um, uh, what we have decided that for our impact to our community, we would adopt a local school, and we have this incredible 25-year um, partnership with the local elementary school um, that warms your heart. Probably the best thing Arnold's Mazina does is the I Am Learning program, and um, for me, the social part is in the giving. And so if you're fortunate enough to be gifted the opportunity to do community service on company time, and you have the pleasure of having a young five-year-old, six-year-old from Honduras who's come through all god-awful things, who doesn't speak English, and you get them to read by just about this time, you come to work with your buttons popping off because that's the social part. So we try to live it and because we all work in this, in this program. And the governance is, man, you do the right thing, uh, you don't have to worry about the governance. It takes care of itself. And we're a corporation, we do all the things. We are going to embark upon being a B Corp. When I started, um, there were no B Corps, uh, uh, but we are going to uh, embark upon the, 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 the very positive process of differentiating ourselves uh, you know, more, more pointedly uh, to the genre that I think we belong, which I think we are a perfect B Corp. Yeah. Um, so we try to do it you know, through our, well, we, we, I think we do it through our people. I mean, you don't have people that work for us for 20, 30 years because you're not socially hip, right? right. right. But I'm not, an old guy, right? I mean, I'm not socially hip. But, and one thing but, I want to really point to is, you know, we work in, an, in the investment industry, which historically has been very male-dominated. If you look at our practice, Tony doesn't even think about this because it's just set, so ingrained in his mindset and the nature of this firm. But the two managing directors of both our institutional and our wealth management practice are females. Our board has a tremendous amount of female influence um, in terms of the direction of this company, and the leadership team has a tremendous amount of women who have a seat at the table, have a voice in the future of this company. It's it's a really key component and this was how we're structured. And it's been that way from the beginning because it was started by my wife and I, so it's sort of a 50-50 deal, and, right. and now, you know, um, Diversity is such a crazy word. It, it, I, I don't really know how to say it, but you know, it takes all kinds to make the game, the, the world go around. And why not be inclusive of all kinds, men, women, color, you know, old, young. I really find it incredibly how wasteful we are to all the experiences of the old as they waste away uh, without family. But um, here, we've just been really fortunate to build. Um, around really environment, you know, the, the, around social things, around, around people. Yeah. Because we hire people to run our portfolios. And on the private equity side, we hire people to run our companies. If you get the people part right, and you start to align your interests, you know, your interests, you can make magic. I mean, we can prove to you that, you know, that you can outperform, that you can have your cake and eat it too, I think. Um, and, and I'll just add to that, I mean, we, by, I wouldn't say by law, but we have to have 50% uh, representation from both genders in our magazine. It's benefited us because we actually have a, a higher uh, female reading base yeah. and oh, subscriber right. base. I, 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 you know, they're just, Brian and I yeah. have been together for so long and we've been doing this that we're probably the, the appropriate pair here. Right. But, you know, our uh, ownership is, is more than 50% women. And wow. uh, our three of five of the five 
senior jobs, three of them are held by women and two of them are held by these two characters you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's really exciting. I mean, just think about it. You can take an idea, you can invest time, money and effort, research, and then you know roll out something pridefully with confidence to perform. It, and 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 it'll, it'll last, right? Because yeah. it makes you know really good common sense. And um, I don't know why. Maybe it's Portland. Maybe it's the water uh, that we do this. But um, I think the thing that we said that is most operative is that we drive our bus looking through the windshield. And it's crazy. You know, females represent twelve percent of the board seats in America. Um, I can't wait until the day it's fifty percent, um, and and what that will do for our country. Uh, in, in our government and everything else. But, okay, we touched on the E, we touched on the S, we touched on the G. Um, the next question I have for you, Brian, is, is what's the biggest misconception that people have about impact investing and, and their return on investment? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is one thing that the marketplace hasn't given up, and that, that's that it has to be concessionary, right? That mm. To do these good things that you have to accept a below market return. And I think what we've demonstrated in our client portfolios and just how much the market has moved to, to gaining more acceptance, there's more product out there. We talked about this institutional mindset needing to look at a historical track record to gain the confidence to deploy capital in this space. These strategies have started proving themselves out that you do not have to sacrifice returns to invest in a meaningful and impactful way. I like that a lot. And now I want to focus on leadership. You mentioned management, you mentioned leadership too. Um, What are some qualities that you're looking for in a board or in the actual entrepreneur themselves? Uh, Tony, you want to take this one? Sure. I'm really pretty simple. Do they got the DNA? Do they have true grit? And can they change? Okay. And if you put those three together and you look for that and you're relentless, um, I I get to wear two hats, I'm fortunate. I'm not two-headed yet, maybe. Um, That in our private equity arm, we're highly convicted that it's the leadership team that makes the difference. There's a lot of great technologies, there's a lot of really good ideas, but it's really the people and the team. And so you're, I think if we had a skill set, it's that we can, we can hang out with good people and we can sort them out. And then you have to kind of be relentless. I don't think it's any different on, on, on the fun side either. It, if, if you sit in a room with all the people who manage our money, you can hang out with them, you can have dinner with them. They are real people who are really passionate and good at what they do. So I think maybe if there is a skill, it's, it's a people skill, it really and, it, and it's a passion about, um, uh, especially in the private equity area, where if you don't have the right people, you have to make, you have to have the ability to change relatively quickly because it's other people's money. And so we, I would say that it all starts with people and all ends in people, to me. And Brian, so, I'll flip sides. What's yeah. a leadership quality that you might not look for in somebody? Like, is it, is it yeah, issues, I mean, integrity? Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I love looking for humility. You know, people who oftentimes will lead with their mistakes and the lessons that weren't that they learned from those mistakes. Um, so humility would be a big one. Uh, I think you know, understanding people and leading people and understanding the weight of leading an organization. It's not just about you know how the company is doing from a profit loss statement on a quarterly basis. It's treating the people that are the asset of the organization with respect and making sure that they're feeling nurtured, encouraged, uh, motivated to grow both personally and professionally at the firm that they're working for. There, there's just so many aspects to it that are that are really important. And then, you know, I think if you kind of dovetail all those together, it's, it's a willingness to kind of look beyond yourself, right? It's not just about 
um, your own compensation and your own certain metrics. It's about understanding you're working for a larger cause. Your people, your clients, that's where the focus needs to be. And, and when you focus on those two things, you generally have good outcomes. And, and to play off that, Tony, you said we, we're doing stuff that the world needs. It takes a lot of long-term thinking, long-term vision, like you're just alluding to. What advice do you have for the next generation to come? Oh, gosh. Get involved. Vote. Um, it's not it's, – you can do it. One of the things I worry about, and I talk to a lot of young people, is they think that there's so many problems that they can't solve any of them. My, my, my input would be mm-hmm. find one and go after it. Uh, I came from a generation growing up in the 50s and the 60s where America was in a, in a, in a tumultuous time. Um, and uh, and to, be, to be active and to pay attention and, and, and don't give up because the world is a good place. But, but I, I, I find with the young people a certain amount of like incredible optimism and, and but then a certain amount of fatalism around the complexities and the gravity of the problems that we face. Uh, there's always been great problems and, and they've always been big. And don't allow, you know, the current rhetoric to get you down. You know, you gotta vote. Please vote. Um, you know, and get everybody you know to vote. Have a voting party. Uh, take the day off. Celebrate. You know, the fact that you can vote. Um, and just become involved. There's there's a lot of good stuff going on. Um, keep your dauber up. Don't don't let anybody. Don't don't listen to all the news. <laughs> Well, I like that a lot, and obviously Be Bold is one of those, right. making that, all those calls, thousands, um, and just trying to make that point and, and just say, hey, we can make impact. We can deliver what the world needs through investment and private equity and everything else. Um, so, Tony, 10 years later, we're talking to you. We want to know what your definition of a real leader is. Oh, well, you, you got to get up in the morning with a smile on your face, that's for sure, because you never know what you're going <laughs> to get when you walk in the office. But I think it's vision. It's caring. Yeah. I think we care more here. Uh, I think it's tenacity. Uh, and I think it's fun. And I think it's the love of people. And I got to somehow in life was a good salesman when I was born. You think I have the word salesman across <laughs> my forehead? I got to pick up the baton here as a conductor, uh, and I got to lead these great people to, to, to drive you know, our organization, our families. Uh, we've had a lot of babies here. Uh, we've had a lot of stability here. Uh, and, and tenaciousness as an investment professional. I think tenaciousness as a CEO is one of the qualities that we might not talk about as much, but boy, you got a lockjaw down on this. And 10, 12 years of lockjaw before you you know, come out is a long time to, to to wait, right? But I think it's the just what you do when 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 you kind of know when to come out, right? I think we came out early before, and we were tenacious to keep at it, and we were we were convicted. That's another word I'd use: convicted, tenacious, caring, loving. Yeah. You know, and and have some fun. <laughs> yeah, like a lot. And Brian, what about you? How do you define leadership? Yeah, I, I think Tony hit on a lot of those things. We went through a management bio where Tony and his wife uh, sold a, the vast majority of the firm, kind of next generation leadership at the firm. And you know, over that last two and a half years, you gain a real appreciation of just the responsibility of being an owner, of being a leader, and, and, and setting that example on a day to day basis of. 
you know, doing right by your clients and just ultimately focusing on them, then that'll, that'll lead to really great outcomes. So respecting the responsibility that comes with being a leader, being an owner is critical in this, in this industry, and really every industry. Well, gentlemen, thanks for coming on today. Pause, one second. I have one question I want you to ask him. Okay, yeah. Because you guys are killing that ballpark. I can't even <laughs> I, I, We just don't see this. Got a lot of content. <laughs> a lot of ums, coughs. Uh, we're not even starting. I'm like, shocked. Yeah. We're we're on You're this. rocking it. The question you need to ask him, because it's really interesting, this advice you're giving and the input's interesting. With your visionary thinking, putting that lens on, with that lens in leadership, where do you see in a 10 year period the growth opportunities in the impact space? Yeah. Tony, in 10 years, where do you see the growth opportunities in impact investing? Well, I think the biggest, unfortunately, the growth opportunities are in the rest of the world. They're not in the United States yet, and that's a function of policy. Um, I would like to believe that in 10 years, the entire world has a decarbonization policy, and, and they are beginning to implement it. It is happening in Europe. It's really, like I said, I was in, in London. They're decarbonizing. That means if you are a cabbie in London and you want to buy a new cab, it must be electric. They're putting charging stations on every corner. If you're a new house built, you can't hook up to the gas grid. They are serious about decarbonizing. And I actually believe it might be the one thing that will rally our country into the next generation of success. Because we can't really rally around anything else. And this decarbonization, if you're a, a mother, a grandfather, a child, you don't want to destroy Mother Earth. We need to nurture it. And so decarbonization would be my dream. California, 50% by 2030. England, 100% by 2030. So what we need to do in the United States is to be led by our European brethren to create policy that allows us to rally and then the technologies that are going to come out of decarbonization, wireless charging. Uh, I mean, there are so many that we're looking at. The geothermal, which is a constant power source. Uh, uh, the opportunities are incredible out there. It's just... Um, We've got to get policy to decarbonize. And that's what, not only do, do I hope, I believe that if we don't, the risks are too great for my grandchildren. <laughs> and that's what I was gonna say, and I'll pass this to you, Brian. Obviously, I wouldn't say obviously, but there is possibility that we can't turn this around, we can't change this. From you personally, though, from your opinion, do you believe this will happen? Absolutely. I mean, you just look around. The opportunities are everywhere. And I, I have three of those young children that I think about their future um, that, you know, we have to solve for. But this nation and this world, the technological advances that we've made, we're not even scratching the surface on how we can change things and make a, a big impact in the world. We need to shift some of that tech focus to those people who are, are focused on kind of changing outcomes and changing the world in a very positive way. Um, but it's it's definitely achievable, and I, I, I think we will as a nation and as a world really kind of come up with these solutions. But the opportunities to, to make money and do good in this, in this world are, are really abundant. 
And is this, is this going to be done through the private markets, or is this going to be, you think, a collaboration of both? The way to get there is through the private markets, but without policy, it ain't going to work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what like we have to be doing, you know, they, they make fun of the, 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 the new Democrats and the, and the more the green. I mean, that's, a, that, that's the thing to be done. We should be adopting a decarbonization um, policy as soon as quickly, and we should have all the incentives um, from our from our leaders in our government to uh, implement a faster transition, because the risks of excessive carbon over the next ten or twelve years, uh, you will not be able to fly into LaGuardia, Kennedy, Logan. We'll be gone. The entire eastern seaboard rail line will be underwater. The damage to just global warming and and no ice is trillions. And we're not even even talking about it. We're talking about crazy, goofy stuff in Washington. We need leadership. We need vision. And and I hope to God it isn't forced on us. That is, Mother Nature nature revolts. And we have to scramble. And... We could go on for days about the yeah. world's biggest problems. I mean, I'd love to do that another time. But I just want to say, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, yeah. uh, we you. talked about the story, talked about the E, the S, the G, uh, and wrapped it up with leadership advice and what a real leader is. So I appreciate your time coming on the 72nd episode of the Real Leaders Podcast, and best of luck going forward. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having us. All right. Thank wow. you both. That was fun. You guys rocked it. That was great. And boy, you know, that heartfelt piece is what really people need to hear. So good job on that, both you guys. Well, that's true. Let's Damn stop it. at the very, very end. I got all, everything both. That's why I put it. Um, no, but with that, that, that's why I was wanting to, you know, you have to plant that seed, right, in order for people yeah. to get there. And uh, we need to hear more. And we've got, we've got a lot of people around the world, like you guys. Well, very, at the very end, it was only the last, oh, like, um, So make sure to save it. It did. Yeah, well, inspiring. I, I, I want to. I want to. I don't know. No, time wise, um, I would love to rehook up because yeah. we're. What I've kind of decided with Dave Chen and, and Brian is, and for me, I'm. A, you know, as as I just turned seventy, I'm getting a little more urgent about getting this done. So I want to go back out and connect dots. We're completely hooked up with Breakthrough Energy and the Bill Gates Yayas. In fact, we share deals. Are that you should think about talking to the 3 by 5 group because that would blow your mind. I mean, I mean, we own <coughs> Rubicon Global, which is the Uber of Trash. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you familiar with the Vanguard? Vanguard there, and Vanguard Technology, so they yeah. basically turn trash into cash. In yeah. In yeah. Yeah. So this is re- recycling and doing 500 yeah. million revenue, yeah. growing really rapidly. Yeah. We own Zero Mass Water, which is the most incredible out of the atmosphere, yeah. they, it makes five to seven liters of potable water a day out of the sun. Are they local or are they? No, they're in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, that's what I was me about. Yeah, um, so we own SmartWire, which is a, yeah. a power flow control device that is the enabling technology that allows variable energy to enter the grid and be managed. Mm. Right. And mm. That was... And then we own Fish People Seafood, which is probably the coolest mm-hmm. seafood. Well, it is the seafood brand. It's in almost 10,000 points of sale uh, with a soup line, a jerky line, and a frozen line. 
and uh, they're right down the street and they and and this is another cool thing and i never thought how that this life is cool um so we <laughs> bought this we bought this funky it's building funny. right this building was yeah. beautiful it was funky it was kind of like this one and when i walked in i went and i had a mezzanine was all buggered up and i said you know if we open this thing up we could put our offices up there and we could put fish people in the rest of the place so we are uniquely a venture capital firm sharing an office with one of our portfolio companies. That is that's super And fish cool. people, I'll show you this, these pictures. You know, you guys yeah. are the real deal. Now, no, 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 we are on it. But we're really quiet. It's, it's more, it's, it's, it's just more, yeah, right. <laughs> it's just more <laughs> humble. I mean, it's just, we're just. Uh, see, I love the humility. That's, that's what I agree on. Everything I do. So, we're Westland, yeah, right. Westland, yeah.
Oh, they will. They will. And it, it'll turn out better because we'll be able to live edit, or not live edit, but edit everything um, tonight or tomorrow. Oh, nice. Um, and we can push it out. I have another podcast tomorrow at noon. So um, we'll probably release it right afterward if we have the time. Well, that's a really interesting topic because you're telling me he's a leave from behind guy. And yeah. then you're saying, well, you might want to step in and be a little bit more vocal and take the reins every now and then. Now, what would you say like would be a perfect balance of a leader? Well, I think leadership is situational and a good leader can read the situation and flex his or her style accordingly. Mm. There's a time to be directive. There's a time to be um, affiliative. There's a time to use more of a coaching approach, etc. Now, is it different in different industries too? I mean, is it different for somebody in the medical field versus, um, you know, who's taking care of patients all day versus someone who's working, uh, in a, in a call center, um, who's working with people on the phones? Not necessarily. We work across all sectors and the issues are really universal. So it does depend on the context, but talking about, you know, a medical context, there's a situation, somebody clutches their chest and falls to the ground. It's, so what do you all, it's, it's not, so what do you all think we should do? It's right. you call 911, <laughs> exactly. right? It's more directive. That's what the situation calls for. There may be other situations, like maybe you're designing a new wing for the hospital. All right, that's going to be more collaborative, seeking input from many different parties. What are the needs? Mm -hmm. What are the important things that we need to consider? And so this all, this is all kind of stem from the original point of just self-awareness, being able to understand your strengths and weaknesses. Self-awareness is huge. It's a vital element of emotional intelligence which is key to effective leadership. And I think it's actually part of what really drew me to this work. I have a high value around self-awareness. And one of my favorite aspects of the work that I do is I get to help others expand or grow their self-awareness. Um, now, this is just a question because we cover a lot of uh, different companies who are, have gender balanced leadership have, you know, 50% uh, male, 50% female on boards uh, together. Mm -hmm. And they have found that um, this um, diversity has increased profits or whatever you want to say, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's made the business better. Yeah. Um, what are your insights on gender balanced leadership? Well, diversity is, has been proven, as you said, to yield much better results. And so whether that's gender diversity, um, ethnic diversity, or racial diversity, um, diversity of personality type mm -hmm. as well uh, can be really huge in yielding better results because when we don't have that diversity, there is the danger that we fall into groupthink and mm -hmm. we don't have others challenge our point of view. Research has shown that even when there is just one lone dissenter, even if that dissenter is wrong, it still yields a better outcome because of the discussion that ensues because of that dissent. Hmm. That's, you know, it's so interesting. And, and, you know, as a, as a young adult working um, with other girls on teams, uh, it's been so eye-opening for me. Woman, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> still, like I said, young adult. So yes. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, all, all the correct all the time. So, uh, but working with other women on teams really opened my eyes to kind of how women think 
and and at least the women on my team think. Mm-hmm. So we did a, uh, a gosh, it was like a not a questionnaire, is a not even a test. It was a simulation, and we were um, out in the wilderness. Our plane had just crashed, and we were mm-hmm. going through the simulation, and and we had a, a checkbox of one through fifteen of items that we had to rank in importance. Whereas the three men on our team ranked the knife, um, the fire, the bow and arrow um, as higher importance mm-hmm. for food, um, the woman ranked the shelter items as higher importance, the mm. tent, the, the uh, security, the safety strategy. How are we going to eat? How are we going to be cozy at night? And it was just that right there that really clicked with me. And we were able to look back at that simulation throughout the entire course of that semester and, and really think of, okay, well, um, what are you guys seeing on this side? What are we seeing? And, you know, how is our product, our idea going to relate to the women versus the men? So there's just well, I think so that's many a good example yeah. of you need both. You do need both. Exactly. And our team was, um, we were actually out of all the teams, we were 50, 50 and our team actually excelled and won the entire class because we had thought about these different um, uh, ways of thinking. So, Great. and I'm not trying to brag about, you know, a little <laughs> case competition. No, it's a wonderful example it, of, it, again, how that um, diversity of thinking can yield a better result. It was eye-opening for me. And that's when I, I said right then and there, I said, if I ever am on a board with anybody, it needs to be gender balanced because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's almost stupid not to have it be. So, um, you know, it's 50% of your population. Um, I think that also it's, you know, we all have blind spots. There are areas where we don't know what we don't know. And by having people of different genders and backgrounds, et cetera, on our teams, they can show us things that maybe hadn't occurred to us before that we haven't even thought of that can, again, yield better results. Exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, what about resiliency? What about, um, you know, going through the stuff, um, feeling like you're in a place and you're going nowhere, but just seeing that light, the tunnel and and keep on working and keep on pushing. Resiliency is a big trait in leadership. Um, How important is resiliency in the Next Steps uh, Partners program? Well, resilience is important for any of the leaders that we work with because they are working on development challenges. And uh, sometimes it can be, very challenging. There's a great quote uh, by Ray Dalio. It's one of his principles. He is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the most successful hedge fund. And he has the book out now called Principles. One of them that really resonated with me is pain plus reflection equals progress. Pain plus reflection equals progress? Yes. And that goes to the vulnerability and reflection that I mentioned earlier as being so critical to growth and development. And that's where the growth mindset comes into play and knowing that, you know, the pain might be that we got tough feedback. The pain might be that we're on our growth edge and that's not a comfortable place to be, but having a growth mindset around, all right, I'm not going to do things perfectly every time I'm going to screw up and knowing that I can reflect on those situations and learn from it and do better next time is really important. And so having that self-compassion is also 
huge to our ability to develop resilience in addition to the growth mindset that I just mentioned. And sometimes it's really hard to get out of the funk, at least for me at a young age, it's, it's like little things which just gets you down and it's hard to get out of that stuff and it's hard to um, get back to where you were originally. But what I found is our habits have been very good, whether it's going to bed at the right time, waking up on the same time, um, exercising, um, yoga, uh, meditating, whatever it is, habits been very helpful for me, you know, in my start to my career, what habits, um, do you have that you like to take into your life every day? Well, one, let me just say that self-care is hugely important mm. in both resilience as well as even being able to do that type of high level strategic thinking. So kudos to you in terms of the practices that I do. I, try to get sufficient sleep every night. I try to exercise regularly. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it right. doesn't, yep. but uh, I try and do better the following week. But like you said, you know, everybody can fall into a funk, and so that's normal. But I think part of what keeps us stuck or may keep us in a funk is having just one perspective around a particular situation. Mm. And that's part of what a coach also does is helps their client see different perspectives so that they can get unstuck and move forward. And I would say that's another vital element of building resilience is being able to see multiple perspectives around a situation. I had a client who I worked with several years ago where he was, uh, so this was right after 9-11 and he was unemployed for about a year, you know, the economy was in the tank, he was in the finance sector, and he was understandably very depressed about mm, the situation. Right. Yeah. And when, you know, we thought about all the different ways of looking at his situation, both negative and positive, you know, mm -hmm. thinking I'm a loser is definitely one perspective, but chances are that's not going to help you very much in moving forward. Um, I asked him, you know, what would, let's just say his name was Robert, what would Robert 20 years from now say about this period of time in your life? Mm. And without hesitation, he said, oh, it's a blip. And I said, exactly. So if you take that perspective to this particular time in your life, that this is a blip, what does that, you know, allow for you in moving mm. forward? What does that do for you relative to all of the other potential perspectives or the one that you're holding now? And that was the perspective that he really took on to get himself out of the funk. And ultimately, you know, many years later, it was a blip. He's doing incredibly well. Good. He is, you know, a partner at um, you know, a big firm and is very successful. So it's inconsequential on his resume. Now, is that similar to far-sighted leadership or is that just more reflection? I think that it is being able to step back and see just new different perspectives than the one you are currently holding or the one that you tend to hold. We can sometimes fall into the victim mindset mm -hmm. when things aren't going our way. And that is one of the... Um, I would say uh, sort of um, pitfalls or traps that can work against us in building resilience, that can actually inhibit our resilience 
there's something called the drama triangle and the the typical victim villain Uh hero. And we tend to gravitate to a particular type of role. Um, You know, we play each role at one point or another, but it's the victim role in particular Hmm. that can keep us stuck and keep us in a funk feeling like things are constantly happening to us and feeling powerless. That's not a fun place to be. And, um, you know, ways to get out of that are, you know, through things like self-compassion or mindfulness or um, going into, you know, problem-solving mode, feeling like, okay, I don't have control over X and Y, but what do I have control over? And being able to draw upon those things to shift perspectives. And Rebecca, problem-solving mode on a personal level is coming up here. Problems. Problem solving season is coming up here in January first. It's about to be New Year's resolution time. Yeah. So I had this I had this conversation the other day with a buddy of mine. He was telling me, "Oh man, like come January, I'm gonna be getting fit. We're gonna be getting big out here, and I'm gonna start over." And I said, "Man, I don't believe in New Year's resolutions. I don't believe in those things at all. I don't. I purposely do not set them." Because yes, I am the same way. I believe that point? if it's important enough, you just start doing it now. But it's funny that you mentioned the New Year's resolution because uh, a big area that I work in is around adaptive change. And that is really the mindset piece. The New Year's resolution approach to things is really about what we would call technical change, which is right. about acquiring new skills and knowledge, adding new information to your current way of thinking. Adaptive change is about um, expanding how you think. So it's more transformative. And just to use the New Year's resolution analogy, if I decide that I want to lose five pounds, the technical aspect of that change is I know I need to go to the gym three or four times a week. I need to cut my calorie count, watch carbs and sweets. And that stuff is important and can get me some initial progress. But if the problem is really adaptive in nature, meaning it's really related to my mindset and how I think about, say, food, that perhaps I think that I'm not being sociable if I don't have dessert with my friends or I equate food with love, then those technical things are only going to get me so far until I start backsliding into old behaviors. Interesting. So a lot of the things I'm hearing is about these traits, maybe a little bit, you need some discipline um, when you're trying to start things over, stay on that strict schedule, whether it's in business or just in your personal life. Um, But these things are sometimes taught or some of these things are maybe you're just born with. In in your case, at least in your opinion, uh, would you say leadership is uh, from nature or is it nurtured? I think some personalities have a predisposition to want to step forward and take leadership, but leadership can certainly be taught. I mean, that's what I do for a living. Right. So it's, um, it's definitely uh, an acquired and teachable skill set. So Rebecca, last question. Actually, of course, yes. we've conversation the whole time. It's been great, but I'm going to ask you, Releaders Magazine, what is your definition of a releader? Wow. Uh, Again, a very big question. I would say definition of a real leader is somebody who is self-aware, who is reflective, and who is seeking to continuously grow and develop, that they recognize that they are never done and that they can always be learning from everyone around them. 
Great definition. We hear them all the time. And, and I think self-awareness is a new one. And I think it's uh, one that is definitely the theme of this conversation today and, and is very important uh, for all leaders and just people to be aware of uh, themselves and, and their surroundings as well. Um, so Rebecca, last thing, any last words you'd like to let our audience know about where they can find more information about what you do? Sure. Well, they can follow me on Twitter at RS Zucker. Our website is nextsteppartners.com. And if you go to nextsteppartners.com slash list, you can download a list of our favorite leadership development resources. There you go. All right, people, you heard it here first from Rebecca Zucker. I'm Kevin Edwards telling you that um, we need to be a little bit more self-aware today. Uh, you know, take that and apply that to your life. And also um, check out Re uh, Rebecca on Twitter and at Next Step Partners. Um, next at 1245, we have on another leadership consultant, Ron Carucci, um, where we will continue this conversation about leadership. Folks, if you want to check out more, check out this Oprah edition I've been featuring all day today. Um, we had a couple tips today, but in this magazine, Rebecca, we've got 105, 105 amazing tips. Wow. So go online to www.real-leaders.com slash shop and pick up your edition today or just sign up for the newsletter for free. Great newsletter coming out every single Friday. All right, folks, for Rebecca Zucker, again, I'm Kevin Edwards. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time and coming on the show today. We appreciate having you. And thank you. It was well, fun. Thank you. And, and to all the realers out there, keep it real.